everyone, we are continuing our read through of the New Testament, and we are getting ever so close to the end as we are in Revelation 20 today, which details the final destruction of both the dragon and death, those final two enemies of God's people, and the final judgment of all peoples. And so we see basically the final finality of all judgment here in chapter 20, which will then lead into the consummation of the new heavens and earth seen in chapters 21 and 22. So let's read, beginning with the first 10 verses, and then we'll make some comments after that. So here we look at the thousand years and the defeat of Satan. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years." And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from the prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So let's go ahead and stop right there. All right, so here we got, right? We, this is one of the most divisive and debated portions of Scripture, really, in the entire New Testament. And there are concepts in this work that we find in no other Jewish or Christian writing. And that's one of the reasons why it has been given to such, I think, such a wide array of views and interpretive backgrounds because we have so little really nothing else to compare it to. We have nowhere else any concept of a double resurrection, a first and second resurrection that are being implied here. We have no other concept anywhere else that seems to denote um, a, a thousand years, this kind of millennial concept. What what in the world is being referred to here? And there's a, a number of individuals that have, have taken shots and interpreted these in a number of ways. And and, and, and I think many who find themselves, whether they are premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial, um, stand strongly by what they, they believe to be true regarding this passage. And we're in no, no way in this very short overview going to flesh out that. But, but we'll try our best to simply just give the view that, that, that I believe is the most consistent and clearest way to understand this uh, in light of the whole view of Scripture. So let's consider a couple of things. Let's begin by considering this temporary binding of Satan. Now, it would be much tidier if the battle in chapter 19 had seen off all of God's adversaries. Then nobody would have grumbled. If the beast, the dragon, 
the false prophet and death all were destroyed at the end of the battle in chapter 19. This really wouldn't be a much of an issue, right? This would be really a, a no problem at all. Nobody would have grumbled if Satan had been a part of the defeated host and the book had just merely proceeded from 19 straight to chapters 21. But Revelation is not a tidy book, not really in any way as we have seen in reading through it. It may help to remind ourselves of really two moments where the sequence of the flow of the argument has been interrupted by specific interludes. There were unexpected pauses, like when we think about the sequence of seals, which paused between the sixth and seventh seal, the, the pausing between the sixth and seventh trumpet, right, where we get this beautiful picture both times of the church victorious, right? The faithful witnesses of God, the, the measured temple, the, the militant multitude who are innumerable, which no man can number. All of these were a part of those very distinct pauses. And yet now we have another interesting one here. Again, we, can, we note that it concerns the suffering of the martyred people of God, who are again celebrated as the true witnesses, the priest kings who share the Messiah's rule. Now this gives us a clue to our first two questions. We must not forget that the Satan was initially a member of the heavenly council. Though he has fallen from his position, he may still, by God's permission, play a role. I'm absolutely reminded of, his, of God's sovereignty over him in the story of Job. The Satan's job was always to accuse where accusation was due, to make sure that nothing reprehensible went unreprehended. Now, one last time, he must play that role, even though, as before, he will pervert it and try to deceive and accuse in all directions, warranted or not, as we see in verse 8. He must ultimately do the worst he can, so that when he is defeated, there will be no last tiny remnant of suspicion that anything worthy of accusation has been left unaccounted for. He must be allowed a final moment to flail around with his lies and accusations, so that in his overthrow, it will be clear beyond the slightest doubt that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in the Messiah Jesus. Like a boxer staggering to his feet to face the last punch, he must come up one more time, even if only to be knocked out flat on the canvas forever. Before that can happen, the reign of Jesus with it through his millennial people must be established by the first resurrection. Now John itemizes these people not just as martyrs, but specifically as those who have been beheaded for their witness. We should, I presume, take that symbolically. It may hint at something to do with their true citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It was Roman citizens who were beheaded, a greatly preferable death to many of the others that Romans devised, not least crucifixion itself. It seems in any case, contrary to John's normal line, to suggest a radical difference. But should we take the thousand years symbolically as well? Again, I believe that we should. John has used all kinds of symbolic numbers throughout Revelation. It would be very odd if he were suddenly to throw in a rather obvious round and symbolic number, but then expect us to take it literally. There were some around the year AD 1000 who supposed that they were about to see the end of the millennium. But as with other speculations of the date passed without significant eschatological events taking place, but what is the actual reality to which the symbol points? It appears at first sight very difficult to see this millennium as the age of the church. Nobody aware of church history would suppose that there has been no satanic attack, 
no deceiving of the nations or even of the church itself during that time. It could be a time still future, either the final prelude to the second coming of the Messiah or a period immediately after that coming, the classic post-millennial and premillennial interpretations. But both of those seem to me to miss the point for reasons too numerous to go into in this overview. The clue to the passage is, I believe, in the opening line, I saw thrones with people sitting on them who were given authority to judge. This is straight out of Daniel 7, where the thrones were for the Ancient of Days and one like a son of man. But Daniel 7 itself interprets the latter phrase corporately, so that the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom and the authority to judge. It looks then as though John is referring not to a thousand-year period on earth, but to the heavenly reality which obtains during a particular period. Jesus, according to the whole New Testament, is already reigning. Matthew 28, 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 28, and so many more. And what John is saying is that the martyrs, those who've died for their faith, are already reigning with him. This indeed is more or less what is said as well in Ephesians 2, 6, where the church is said to be seated in heavenly places in the Messiah Jesus. Presumably, they aren't just sitting there doing nothing. Perhaps, after all, John's millennium does correspond to a more widely known early Christian view, though in Ephesians there is no sense that it would only apply to martyrs. As to the binding of Satan, Jesus declared that he had already accomplished this, which was why he was able to perform exercises. Matthew twelve twenty nine. The strong man must be bound first in order for someone to plunder the goods of his house. The Satan was, after all, still able, therefore, to work through Judas and others to accuse Jesus and bring about his death. Perhaps what we are seeing in Revelation 20 is merely the cosmic version of that story. Perhaps at this point, above all, above all the rest of the New Testament, in my experience, it doesn't do to be too dogmatic here. We must hold on to the central things which John has made crystal clear. The victory of the Lamb and the call to share his victory through faith and patience. And God will then do what God will do. Whether we describe the final events as Revelation 20 has done, or as Paul does in Romans 8, 18-26, or 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, it is clear that the one who wins the victory is the Creator God who does so to defeat and abolish death itself, and so to open the way to the glories of the renewed creation. And that is ultimately what matters. And so with the destruction of Satan clear, with him seeking to allure the nations against him and being thrown into the lake of fire, him where the beast, the false prophet, where they are fully and completely destroyed once and for all, as they have sought to deceive and to harm and to hurt and to kill God's judgment against those wicked systems and those wicked rulers and wicked leaders are fully and completely final. And now he turns to people themselves. And the final judgment, where those who are against him will be judged, and death and Hades itself will be thrown into fire forever. Verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in it, the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to the end of the year, it often moves our minds to other endings. Many of us in our reading plans, regardless of which one you are in, often has revelation near the end, and it moves our mind to things like the final judgment. Now, it is good to settle in our minds, I think, what that will be like, and we see it clearly here in the text. I do believe that we will all face a final judgment with the rest of the world. We will stand all before the judgment seat of God, Romans 14, 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And when Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. I, I take him to mean that we will not be condemned in the final judgment because our sentence has already been passed. Not guilty. So why does it seem like we are there in the last judgment? The picture is given in Revelation 20, verse 12 through 15 here. So, There are books, and then there is a book. The book is called the book of life. The books are the record of the deeds of all people. And this is implied when John says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. All the dead are judged in view of what was written in the books. This includes believers and unbelievers, elect and non-elect. This is a judgment of all people. I saw the dead, great and small. The dead were judged. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. So believers and unbelievers face what is written in the books. It matters, but how does it matter? To answer that, we need to see what it means to have your name written in the book of life. In Revelation 13, 8, John said, All who will dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, Lamb, of the Lamb who was slain. And there's two things that are crucial there. One is that the names have been in the, Revel- in the book of life since before a creation. So here is a reference to the elect, those who would certainly believe upon Christ and be saved through him. Secondly, being written in the book of life ensures that a person will not worship the beast. This is implied in saying everyone will worship the beast except those whose names are written in the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, you will not worship the beast. That is not a coincidence. Being in the book means belonging to God who keeps his elect from demon worship. John says the same thing again in Revelation 17:8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Being in the book ensures that you will not marvel over the beast. So we come back to the judgment in Revelation 20. In verse 15 it says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This implies that being in the book of life ensures that one will not perish. Salvation is secured for all who are written in the book of life. The reason that being written in the book of life secures our salvation is that the book is called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The name in this book are not saved on the basis of their deeds. They are saved on the basis of Christ being slain. He loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We have been ransomed by his blood. So how then does the record of our lives contained in the books, plural, have a part in our judgment? The answer is that the books contain enough evidence of our belonging to Christ that they function as a public confirmation of our faith, our union with him. Consider Revelation twenty one twenty seven. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here the result of being written in the book of life is not only not perishing, but not practicing detestable, sinful behaviors. In other words, just like in Revelation 13, where being in the book of life ensures that one will not worship the beast, so in Revelation 21:27, being in the book of life ensures that one will not make a habitual practice of detestable deeds. Therefore, our deeds confirm that our names are in the book and should be in the book. That is, they confirm that we trust in Christ and are united to Him. Our deeds are the fruit of our faith and our union with Christ, and they are the basis by which believers are rewarded in glory. Right? Their salvation is secure in the judgment because they are written in the Lamb's book of life. Their reward is based upon the fruitfulness of their deeds that they lived in light of their being in the book of life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, our lives do matter. We are not called to merely say a prayer and then live like hell, hoping for heaven every step of the way. No, my friends. We have been written in the Lamb's book of life by believing and trusting wholly upon Christ Jesus. And therefore, our life should reflect that we are written in the book. So the question is today, what do the books of your life, after your coming to Christ, reveal? Do they reveal someone who has had a radical change and interaction with the person of Jesus? Or does the books look the same before and after your supposed conversion? If so, you may want to press into that, for perhaps there may be need more to repent and come fully to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, not a superficial one. God bless.